0: Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Alix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early-stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community
1: or alix.vc. Francisco and David, welcome, welcome to the BIOS podcast. Thanks for joining us, folks. Uh, excited to share the fantastic work the 8 bio team is up to and appreciate you hanging out with us today to get some words of wisdom. Uh, Francisco, do you want to give a little introduction on 8VC?
0: Yeah, thanks for, thanks for hosting us. I guess by the numbers, 8VC is a generalist tech firm uh, that is distributed throughout the United States. Headquarters in Austin, and then we have offices in San Francisco, uh, New York, and then David is starting our Boston office. Uh, We have 3.5 billion assets under management. We are currently investing out of 8BC Fund 3, which is a $640 million fund. And about a third of that is dedicated towards uh, the space of what we call bio IT um which which i can you know dive into in a minute um but yeah that's that's the the broad spectrum overview and then david and i have helped sort of spearhead uh the bio investing with uh, several other of our colleagues alex cole H droding and then uh we have an associate on the team david yang um yeah and just really really excited to to be here and, and speak to this
1: terrific thanks francisco and and might I ask what's your background how did you come to join HVC?
0: Right, so I was, by undergrad in computer science uh, and electrical engineering, um, discovered research work and biomedical research when, uh, in UCSF kind of midway through undergrad, fell in love with it, fell in love with medical image analysis and clinical decision support systems. And so went to Stanford and joined their imaging informatics program there um, to do my PhD. Midway way through Stanford, I did an internship at Formation 8 Partners, which is the predecessor fund to 8VC um, as a resident data scientist. And my job was basically to parachute into startups and help them build out data products. Uh, did that for uh, the final two years of my PhD and then joined 8VC when it spun out of Formation 8 Partners and uh, was still doing the same thing, helping on data products and diligencing data science and AI companies. Um, and we just started to see a lot of biotech deal flow and I just started taking those meetings, uh, because I had a background in the space and saw there was something interesting there and then got excited and, you know, started to push towards investing there and then did, um, the most valuable I did thing I did for ABC was to, uh, recruit my friend, David, uh, Moskowitz here, uh, from grad school, who was my colleague, who was the much, much, uh, smarter person here on the team uh with the biotech investing
1: hey francisco and, and david great to have you on as well Uh would love if you can give us some background
2: yeah my pleasure and thanks francisco for that kind introduction i don't know if i'd take the compliment that i'm the smarter one uh certainly the handsomer one you'll have to use your imagination <laughs> you know my 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 parents always said that i had a a face for radio and a voice for newspapers. So that's, that's my background. Um, <laughs> so I come from kind of a similar academic um, context as Francisco, although diverged a little bit on the research side. So my undergrad was at Brown in computational biology. I spent two years there also working with Soren Ishtrail who had been head of informatics at Celera during the days of the Human Genome Project. And he really pre- played a very significant role in shaping my research interests. When I was with him, did a lot in regulatory genomics and that sort of theme was consistent in everything I did thereafter. So after I finished uh, my time at Brown, I went to Einstein College of Medicine where I worked for three years doing bioinformatics, worked with a couple of different groups on different projects, notably worked with Chuck Rogler and Yushin Suh, John Greeley, Jan Vig, a few different areas, Um, a lot still in regulatory genomics, Um, and epigenetics, looked at the genomics behind biology of aging, uh, microRNA targeting in human human liver disease, did a lot of um, just pipeline development for analyzing different types of high-throughput sequencing data that was coming online then. And this is, you know, circa the Illumina GA2X, so early in the high-throughput sequencing days, but lots of exciting things happening then. From there, I went to Stanford where I was in BMI with Francisco Biomedical Informatics, where I did my PhD uh, with Will Greenleaf in the genetics department. There, um, some of the listeners might know Will uh, for the Taxi assay that came out of the lab while I was there. I also did a master's in stats while I was at Stanford, and then uh, jumped ship from academia into HVC. Um, you know, Francisco, I think, uh, definitely does deserve all the credit for bringing me on board. Uh, he didn't go into the details, but I'm happy to do so. So right after he graduated and and started working. Uh, you know he and I were having dinner in Palo Alto having some hamburgers and I was just asking him you know questions about uh, what it was like in the working world you know for me I was at a point in my PhD where I wasn't sure there was a light at the end of the tunnel and so I was just curious you know what is it like to be at a place where people listen to your opinion where things you do matter where you get respect you know because all of that was foreign to me coming from grad school and the way Francisco tells the story Uh, you know, I'll just steal it from him, is that I was hammering him with questions for 45 minutes. And finally, he just got sick and tired of it and said, well, you know, if you're so curious, why don't you just come do an internship and see what it's like? And at that point, I had never thought about doing an internship. uh, But, you know, I knew I didn't want to be a professor. Both of my parents uh, were teachers, and I knew it would just make them way too happy if I stayed in education. So, you know, moving to industry felt like the right thing. I did an internship, um, and I just thought 8 BC was such a fantastic place to be. I really felt like there was a lot of opportunity and uh, there was a very dynamic place and lots of you know, extremely interesting intellectual engagement happening with different areas. And then I went back to grad school for a little while, thankfully got released early for good behavior, joined 8VC <laughs> and have been working closely with Francisco on the bioIT side ever since.
3: Thanks Francisco and David for adding so much color to your personal stories. We want to talk more about what it was like for you to transition from traditional academic backgrounds to the world of startups and venture capital. So the first one is for Francisco. Is there anything that shocked you when making the leap from academia to startups in BC?
0: Yeah, I think, I think everything was shocking. Uh, my first meeting, at uh, well, it was formation eight then. Um, on my first day was on a Monday. And so Monday is traditionally uh, the day, the internal meetings day amongst venture groups where entrepreneurs come and pitch to partnerships, but then we also spend all of our time discussing investments that we wanna do where we are and kind of voting and moving forward on it. So we have uh, our initial investment committee meeting. It's my first meeting uh, on my first day while I'm doing an internship. And we're discussing some company and we're talking about a relationship Uh, that is close to the firm, you know, an ex-employee of a company that we had invested in. And I just remember Joe saying something akin to like, well, we really want to support them. We don't know uh, enough about the business a little early right now, but I think we should just do a token check uh, to stay friendly and we should just do a token 250,000. And I like, you know, kept it inside but it was like my jaw was about to drop because that was more than I had made in my entire life up until that point and it was basically a rounding error that took all of 15 seconds to to make a decision on and I think that kind of encapsulates these notions of of speed resources and scale uh that are consistently the, the pieces that are hugely different from how I felt a- academia was uh, focused on, you know, um,
1: yeah, and, and how long safer. it takes to get a, an academic grant of that scale. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: I know. Like I got a, I got an NRSA F 31 and it was like two years uh, and like, you know, like 180 pages at the end of my, grant cycle and here it was basically like a seven page deck you know and an idea and somebody's getting 250k it was crazy um so i think i was talking to a professor afterwards and he was like yeah you know just industry is just so fast it can certainly be addictive to feel like you're moving that quickly and i i think that's always the case now is just thinking how can this go faster um and you know what are the resources we can use to make it go faster and then what does true scale mean? What does it mean to be grow something large and how do you even think largely? It's I, I think always has been shocking when I think about it. And we kind of internalize it now, and sometimes I'll just say things that my friends still in the academic environment, you know, their eyes just get open. I remember that feeling and I have to like, you know step back. So uh, I think those are, that's kind of like the major things that always kind of shock me.
3: Right. And David, do you relate to those feelings?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, you know. I think
2: the, the interesting um, element of being in the position of an investor coming from the scientific world, you know, to Francisco's point, there's just so much resource available. And I, I think it's it's a pretty great part of the job, to be honest, to be able to help um, funnel, you know, some of this capital to people who are very rich in ideas, but for whom otherwise it's just a slog to be able to get anything similar in terms of, uh, you know, the amount of resource that we can direct. So. I completely agree. I think there's just, there's so much opportunity on both sides and it's, it's great to be able to make that connection.
3: Right. So, so David, has having a PhD in VC helped or hurt you in any ways during your journey?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, obviously it's a lot of time to get a PhD and it's a lot, frankly, a struggle. Um, There's really no two ways about it. And I, you know, on the one hand, I'd say the only reason to get a PhD is because you can't imagine not doing it. And it's just something where you have to realize that it's, it's gonna be suffering for quite a number of years. Um, and you know, when, it, when you get to the other side of it and you get into a real job, certainly in venture, uh, I think it's a very real question to ask, well, was it worth it? Um, you know, for me, I think more than anything else, a PhD taught me a certain way of thinking that certainly I think has helped. Um, and you know it's kind of similar actually to the style of thinking that you do in venture. So a successful PhD is all about being able to scope out the following questions. Number one, what can you do that's impactful? Number two, how does it relate to what's been done before? Number three, can this be done in a reasonable amount of time? Number four, what amount of resources is it gonna to take to get there? Uh, and that's exactly the same types of questions that you ask when you think about building a company and funding it. So. I think it was very, very helpful just in terms of uh, establishing that mindset uh, and giving me that background for diligence. But, you know, again, I I would say it certainly wasn't a means to an end. It was definitely something that I did just because I felt like I I had to, you know, from, from an internal view.
3: Interesting. And related to the idea that a PhD can help cultivate a mindset and technical expertise that's helpful in venture, Francisco, do you think that other VC funds looking to invest in bio startups need more PhDs?
0: Um, I don't know if they need a PhD as a, as a full-time employee. I, I don't think they don't need one either. I think you need that skill set if you're gonna invest in deep tech and you need to find a way to get that input and be able to synthesize that information. A PhD kind of gives you that, you know, arguably for free, in the sense that this is what we've done. We've had journal clubs. We've had people tear apart our science. We've had reviewer number two. You know, we've had all of that, and so we are used to navigating uncertainty, um, which I think is is one of the top translatable skills from a PhD to venture. Is as I think as David put it. but there are plenty of really amazing deep tech VCs who don't have a PhD, but they definitely know how to get answers to difficult questions. Um, and they can still bring that kind of thinking and mindset. But uh, I, 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 don't, I, maybe it's just like the sort of Silicon Valley in us, but I, I don't know if credentialism ever really makes sense um, as opposed to like understanding why do you want those credentials and what are they supposed to mean?
3: Right. So for those PhDs out there who are entrepreneurially minded and want to maybe get involved in SARPs and venture capital, David, what advice do you have for them?
2: Um, Well, for starters, I'll give you a non-answer, which is to say that I I don't think it's constructive to look at things as stepping stones. So, you know, I I wouldn't start your PhD with the idea that, well, this is going to help me get into venture, or this is going to help me start a company. I think you have to focus at each point in your life Doing the thing that you're really passionate about, then, um, and you know, I, I'd say that that's generally the best way for truly fulfilling success. Just focus on what you want to do. Um, so, you know, with that said, for people who are entrepreneurially minded, uh, you know, in their PhD, I, I think that it's it's really all about understanding what is actually a good idea, um, and you know, part of that comes to uh, VC math. And, you know, I won't take Francisco's thunder because I think he does a great job laying this out, but you really have to believe that you're in pursuit of an opportunity that's going to make sense as a venture funded company. Um, and, you know, without that as a prerequisite, you know, I, I think, I think it's tough, but Francisco, I mean, go for it. I think you do a great job laying out the math that's needed for an idea to work as a company.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's an overly simplified dot experiment, but a couple of base assumptions here, right? Is like, so we're a venture fund. Uh, usually we, so we have 640 million, let's say it was 500 million just to make math slightly easier. Um, and we need to, let's arguably say 3X returns also just to make math easy. Great funds do much, much better than that. Um, but... So that means you know by the end of your investment cycle, you know the enterprise value of your company is that in your ownership in that needs to be about one point five billion. Um, if you uh, own, let's say, twenty percent of a company upon exit, um, that means that the total enterprise value of your portfolio uh, has to be you know one point five times five, and so you know seven point five, uh, and so. And then we think furthermore about the fact that fund returners, the way that um, it works as you follow sort of Fred Wilson's teaching is like about a third of your companies return the fund, about a third return their money and about a third return zero. Um, so about a third of the companies that you invest in should return the majority of the money in the fund. And then, so if we work backwards, let's say like a third returns zero. And so we've got 500 million, let's say we're doing $10 million series A's we reserve another ten million dollars uh, for follow-on investment pro rata to maintain our ownership. Um, that's roughly 25 companies invested in. Um, and then, so of those 25 companies, I'll just round it down to 24 to make it divided by three easier. It's about eight companies go to zero. Eight are going to return the money you put in, which is to say, eight are going to return, you know, 20 million, uh, which is going to be 160 million. Um, uh, but that's the money you've already put in, and then the remaining eight have to generate, you know, that 7.5 billion of enterprise value, which roughly translates to about let's say 800, 900 million, you know, upon exit. Um, and so, when we think about that, and then think about our ownership and all this stuff, like it just there is no way to return a fund without having your companies really think about becoming multi-billion dollar investments and outcomes. Um, And I think that's the hardest thing to encapsulate your mind around because we frequently have to pass on companies that might quote, only be 200, $300 million companies because it just can't move the needle and we can't justify our investment dollars and we can't justify our time to invest into them. Um, And I, I think it's something that we really push upon founders to try to be open with as quickly as possible because I think they're frequently surprised, especially PhD students, when they think they can build really interesting cash flow businesses that might be worth fifty million, and that's life changing and valuable to literally anybody. Uh, but it doesn't work in our math.
2: And the other thing that I'd layer on top of that, and thanks, Francisco. I, I, you know, I totally agree with everything that you said. Is you know the number one failure mode that we see for companies spinning out of academia is a lack of urgency. Right. I mean, if you think about what it's like in your PhD, you know, you're really kind of this lone wolf slaving away. No one's paying attention to what you're doing, but if you're starting a company, you know, let's say in therapeutics, I would say you have almost a moral imperative to move as quickly as possible and grow as big as possible because there's patient lives on the line. And so if you're not spending every day getting closer and closer to the clinic, you know, those, that's an unmet need. That's not being addressed. You know? And I think we, I think we see that often. So, you know, if you're an entrepreneurially minded PhD, I would definitely think about making sure that you uh, view every single day as something where you have to be driving further and further um, because, you know, there really is that impact at the end of the day that you need to get to.
3: Thanks, David, for bringing us full circle there. I think this is a good time to transition to our next topic, which is just discussing more about ABC's thesis. So I'll pass it off to Chaz.
1: Francisco, uh, as an early member of the APC team and and forming the bio initiative here, can you talk to me about your investing thesis and what it means, uh, to be tackling the bio T wave?
0: Yeah. So much of our learnings are basically actually just, uh, taken from how I think bioinformatics and biomedical informatics in the academic sector really positioned itself. And that was, um, Where do tools from, let's say, traditional computation, um, engineering, and tech, and broadly, uh, provide a meaningful competitive advantage towards bio companies? And it's a very broad and general statement. We really don't like to pigeonhole ourselves to say, like, where does data improve things, or where does automation improve things? It's really about, like, there's a standard way of just throwing an army of grad students, postdocs, you know, RAs at the bench to solve difficult scientific problems. And that's totally reasonable. That's how you know biotech has been done for so long. Um, but, you know, what we're thinking about is if we went into head-to-head space, there are areas where computation, where automation engineering, iteration as a principle um, beyond just being a technology, but like fast iteration cycles uh, in experimentation really allow a biotech company to do better, uh, like a bio IT-enabled company to do better than a traditional biotech company. Um, And then taking it even a step further, there's areas that that are impossible to do without computation. Large scale genome analysis and sequencing necessitates informatics methodologies. Um, And, you know, large scale gene synthesis or, you know, uh, guide RNA discovery, all of these things um, require lots of experimentation that need to be tracked using these next gen tools. And so we get really excited when you can either be better than the status quo or you can you know, do something that's completely outside the reach of the status quo. And, and where do those methods that we understand deeply allow for that to happen? I think the true nuance is understanding when, when those techniques help and when they're kind of like nice, but not really necessary, uh, nor sufficient for the success of the companies.
1: And, and in this new wave the companies you're talking about, there's kind of often characterized this new form of a biotech founder, at least, and that's someone having both the sharp technical expertise you described, but also a kind of a, a new age data component to this. Can you talk about um, that stereotype of a biotech founder and kind of what these new founders look like in your eyes?
0: Yeah. So, you know, my favorite story about this is I was talking to somebody who was a founder of Uh, uh, say, a a traditional bio company, and they were a CTO, and uh, their CEO got poached, and it was the craziest thing to ever hear, like, it still is crazy to me, to think that the founder of a startup, the CEO of a startup could be poached, like, John Doerr has a really great quote about saying uh uh, mercenaries and messiahs as as founders and that uh the mercenary goes in just wants to run the company make money and a messiah really thinks that they're you know changing the world and all the sort of other you know almost silicon valley memes at this point but when we think of these sort of founder driven companies uh using these techniques we really think about these like messiah model right like And I think the traditional biotech uh, is basically a professional CEO. You hire them on, they're paid like 400, 500 K. You have so much trouble recruiting them because they want a certain amount of investment around the company. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. It's just, it's just not how we think about it. Like, you almost want this founder who's just so driven that they're going to try to make this work. And you know, when you give them a dollar, they're going to stretch it to make sure this works uh, to know, till, till the very end, that they're, that they're not going to get it poached. And so um, that mentality translates and bleeds into so many other aspects. It's what David said about urgency. Um, it's about, you know, when we invest in platform technologies, people who deeply understand it uh, and want to further it and know how to invest not just in the company for the next year but know how to build things that are going to value the company for the next five years they're not looking for a quick flip they're thinking i want to build the next tech, not in the, in the next big you know big ticket uh, ip based exit so that's a, this cultural perspective um when you focus on these founder driven companies that really changes how these companies grow um we've all startups have tough times. Uh, And there are so many times where if we didn't have the sort of inventor of a technology or the founder of the company be a CEO, like any normal rational person would have quit. And these people didn't, and we've seen them come out the end of these things and do surprisingly well. And I'm not just saying that a normal biotech CEO wouldn't be that way, but we definitely know that a founder driven biotech
1: is that way. And David, in this kind of new paradigm of founder-driven biotech companies, uh, our colleagues at Andreessen have kind of coined the, the phrasing um, engineering biology, kind of software is, is, is eating the world in that sense, software is eating bio now. Uh, as a former scientist turned VC, how do you think about companies uh, in this space? Do you evaluate them similarly? Does uh, the engineering mindset clash at all with the scientific method or do they work in harmony?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, you know, I mean, I have tremendous respect for our colleagues at a 16 z Bio. I think, you know, they've really done a great job marketing and publicizing the importance of the field. Um, you know, i I'd highlight a couple of things. So the first is that, uh, you know, engineers, I think by nature, really like to work on hard problems and understandably so. And certainly if you believe in the software as in the world paradigm, there's a lot that can be done uh, in terms of the application of new CS methods to solve problems that were otherwise and previously intractable. But solving problems that are hard, it's not always the same thing as solving a problem that's important. That's something I'd highlight. And, you know, I'm always reminded of when I took Andrew Ring's class uh, in grad school, uh, he one day, you know, threw up on the projector, uh, this, you know, the slide about, you um, just different areas that you could work on in ML, basically the pantheon of different application types. And he had, you know, this flowchart basically of getting more and more abstracted from the real problem that you're trying to solve. And, you know, you can imagine certain things about like proving bounds of, you know, the way different algorithms perform under different conditions. And not to say that that's not valuable, you know, people who are doing pure math, that sort of thing. It's definitely important for sure. They're contributing to society. I'm not trying to say otherwise, um, but they're not, solving toward building a fundable biotech uh, and where we see this a lot i'd highlight is in target discovery you know there's just waves and waves of companies that are focused on discovering new types of targets and i can understand why right i mean again you know there's all sorts of new approaches and new data modalities that can feed into those approaches that surface targets that maybe were previously obscured but the reality is that's not pharma's biggest problem right like pharma is already in a position where it takes forever and an infinite amount of money to develop new drugs, right? And that has a terrible, terrible impact on the patient at the end of the day. Uh, And so if you're just widening the top of the funnel with more targets, you're not really doing something that's valuable. And I think there's exceptions there. You know, there's companies that have really done tremendously well and and done interesting things in target discovery, but by and large, uh, you know, I see that as an area where you might be solving a problem that's hard, but it's not valuable and that's where I think, you know, the engineering mindset can, can fail because you're not thinking about the biological and translational applications. And relatedly, I think, you know, the other thing we see with engineers who are newly entering the field is, is they might not be aware of failures and where the skeletons are buried and what people have tried before. Uh, and, you know, two places where we see this a lot are in liquid biopsy and drug repurposing. So liquid biopsy, you know, we were investors in gardent Of course, there's recent news about Grail and their acquisition uh, and Thrive. And so I'm not saying that there hasn't been value generated there. In fact, tremendous value has been and continues to be generated there. But the incumbents have done so much work and put in so much effort and really brought to bear so much expertise that if you're starting now in that sector, you're really far behind. And I think that if you're not really from the area you might not appreciate just how much of a head start those incumbents have. Uh, and you know it, it's it's a similar but different story in drug repurposing where there's just been so many attempts and it's just been so challenging to get business models to work for various reasons. And I think that if you're not paying attention to the field, it's easy to fall into that trap. Again, thinking that the hard problem you're solving is a meaningful one. And I think this ties back also to Francisco's prior comments. It's not necessarily that you need a PhD to be able to think about these things. But I think you need knowledge of biology, you need knowledge of the field, and you need to be grounded, again, in those translational applications.
1: Perfect, sure, sure. thanks, David. Some great words of wisdom there. I'll hand it to my colleague, Jess, now.
3: David kind of described the challenge as an engineer or researcher, of balancing the challenging problems versus the impactful problems. And I think that as an investor, we have a different challenge that we have to balance. So, Francisco, how do you think about investing in technologies that can have an immediate impact on patients versus investing in longer term deep tech, which could have a transformative impact on patient, but it may take a longer time for that to come into reality?
0: I don't think about it in terms of that time horizon. I mean, there is a time like, so a fund has to return within 10 years, right? So that's my time bound, But but within that framing, to me, it's more important thinking about the scale of the opportunity uh, than necessarily um, whether it's going to have near-term or, or long-term impact. Um, at the end of the day, we're investors, and we need to put money in and realize massive you know, uh, increases in that share price uh, when it exits. And I think that can be done with the sort of low and slow model, um, you know, one question we always got asked in the beginning of investing in biospaces is, as they always said, "Bio investors and life science investors were always say like, how can you possibly have the patience to do this? You know, it takes so long to take a drug to market, um, and go through like, how are you comfortable with this if you're so used to investing in tech?" And then we just point to the fact that like the founder of our firm, Joe, had started Palantir in 2003, and it literally IPO'd a month ago, like 17 years, um, and so. Uh, and then we look at like how long Uber was private. All these other companies were private. Um, and it didn't matter because the size of the outcome was so massive. Um, things that m- maybe, so a better way of, uh, I would rephrase that question then is, um, how, like how long do we have to wait to see sort of de-risking events? or the sort of oft quoted phrase value inflection points, because if we have to wait five years to get any semblance of any kind of progress towards solving a real problem, I think that's problematic because these companies, you know, presumably need usually only have two to three years of runway and so we need some kind of way to stage it out. And I think that's how I internally view it in my head is how do we plan out the next, you know, two to three fundraisers from here on out, um, can we get to points where these companies can raise in those uh, time periods? But as long as we are able to continuously finance a company and get it to move towards its goal, I don't particularly think or worry as much about uh, when the eventuality of that goal succeeds.
3: We wanna get into more about the specific investment areas of ABC. this one's for David. 8VC has made several investments in different cell and gene therapy companies. And historically, these have been very biology-driven research areas, but have recently been driven by these advances in engineering and technology, kind of this engineering biology mentality that we talked about before. Can you talk through some examples of how new technologies have interfaced with biology to improve these existing approaches?
2: Yeah, thanks, Jess. Absolutely. I mean, this is one of my Favorite areas to talk about. So, you know, if you think back to Francisco's initial characterization of our firm, that's exactly what it's all about. It's all about thinking about how new engineering technology is interfacing with biology and enabling new applications. And, you know, if you look back at the history of therapeutics and their development, uh, you know, I would say it's a story of increasingly moving toward natural and endogenous biology. So we started with, you know, small molecules that were chemically synthesized in a lab. And that was the paradigm, you know, more or less uh, uninterrupted and indefinitely uh, until, you know, we moved into an ability to understand biology and cells at the level where we could develop biologics and antibodies. And then we realized, well, you know, it's a lot more effective in many cases if we can use the machinery that already exists in the cell that evolution has designed for us uh, and develop drugs accordingly, and then even more recently, as new gene editing tech has become available and and widespread, and we've gotten more of a sense of some of the mechanisms that we need to tune. You know, now people, of course, are are widely working in the area of the cell therapy. Uh, you know, as you noted, Jess, which has been a focus for us, and I think you know the next evolution of this is is really thinking beyond just well. How do we make a CDAT cell that's better as a CAR T than the one we've had before? How do we make it do more? How do we make it alginate, et cetera? Um, but you know, the immune system is just so much more dynamic than a CDAT cell working in isolation, right? I mean, it's a whole, whole suite of different cell types that are all operating in concert to orchestrate a response. And so I think you know, about the, the future of what we're looking at here, you know, maybe maybe five years is too soon. But you know, certainly in ten years, I hope cancer therapy, as an example, will look like the co-infusion of numerous different cell types, all engineered against a tumor, all working to coordinate that immune response. And how do we get there? Well, it's all new technology, right? Right. I mean, a lot of these cell types are affect are able to effectively discover and characterize them and understand what makes them efficacious versus not is a function of our being able to sequence. Uh, the cells with you know, aluminum machines and other types of sequencing technology. Our ability to edit the cells, you know, of course, most people are using CRISPR now. You know, people have used Talens, these are all new pieces of tech. Even just uh, you know, transfecting the payload in there, a lot of that is new technology as well. Uh, and you know, so I think that the entire field of therapeutics as we see it today and in the future is almost 100% uh, you know, a function of new technology getting in there. And you know, one thing that's always been kind of surprising to me is everybody's so so focused on just the therapeutic side, but actually, all that infrastructure is at least as important. And you know, Illumina, I'd highlight as enabling for a lot of this. Uh, you know, is one of the biggest biotechnology plays over the last several decades, right? I mean, in the last ten years, they've added something like forty billion dollars in enterprise value. Uh, and you know, I think all of that is is totally earned, right? I mean, they've just enabled so much. Uh, And I think that's equally true of all those other pieces of technology that I named.
3: Thanks for that exciting answer. Next question is for Francisco, um, related to the idea of platform technologies, which is something that we hear a lot of West Coast VCs talk about. Um, That is those technologies that are able to generate assets in an indication agnostic manner. Um, Still, founders of these companies have to pick an initial target or application for their platform to start with build momentum. How do you go about picking initial applications for platform technologies?
0: Yeah, I think um, I like to, to think of, of platforms in maybe two major ways. One is um, what I like to call a, a, a scaffold uh, which is, you know, a platform that we had to build up in order to, to build the house or develop a drug or a product. Uh, but then you tear it down and we don't, we don't particularly care about it, uh, afterwards, um, because the value of the company and the, everybody should know this is the value of every biotech company is going to be the value of its product and its primary product. Um, and then I think of, you know, the alternative that is like a forge or a foundry, uh, where, We invest in this platform, not just for our first product or our second product, but because we believe that it's going to be able to continue paying off and develop a whole pipeline of therapeutics, both internally and a partner um, over a long period of time. And uh, so when I think about it in that way, um, uh, there are certain platform technologies a sort of scaffold model where you kind of have to build it all up because you already have the target in mind. You know you want to go after like a, like a KRAS G12D mutation, and so you pick your certain set of technologies together just to get to that, you know, unique molecule that can uh, inhibit it, um, as opposed to the sort of boundary or forage concept, which is you start with a platform and then from there we try to extract, uh, you know, not just a single product, but a class of products or an area of indications that we want to we want to prosecute and build towards. Um, we are as investors much more focused on the latter, the sort of foundry model. Um, because, you know, that's really where kind of alluding to the earlier point, engineering mindsets shine because we can justify putting so much money into this thing uh, and focus and energy that we're going to be able to Derives so much value from it, um, and so if I take that a step further and think, okay, we've got a cool platform. We get pitched this all the time. Somebody comes to us or I'm like, I have a magical way to, you know, make antibodies, or I have a magical way to produce and engineer this, you know, very interesting cell type. I have a great way to create magical promoters around uh, 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 gene therapies. Um, Then we start to think about a notion that we've started to internally call tech target fit, which is how does the tech you've built um, uniquely allow you to uh, prosecute uh, and and treat the target of interest or target space? Um, And it can do it one of two ways. It can do it better than anybody else, right? So uh, an oral small molecule with better efficacy Uh, towards, you know, some kind of cancer that's better than uh, a very extremely onerous infusion driven chemo, you know, does better and it's much nicer to handle. Um, But the other part of it is what can we do? What novel biology are we enabling with these novel technologies? So um, a gene therapy is and replacement gene therapy and AAV as a platform allowed us to cure diseases that were fundamentally uncurable in other ways. Um, And it just opened up a whole space of of biology and indications and patient sets that normally would have had no other option. And so in that vein, something we've started to think about a lot and is a notion of like a cookie cutter target, which is You've got a platform, it's got some unique use cases, but let's go after something that's very simple. The target is super de risked. You know, there might be drugs on the market that already go after it, but we know that people need to learn to trust this novel biology and this novel platform we're developing. Um, And then there's kind of like the secondary, which is this like blue ocean target or target space, which is what can we uniquely do that nobody else has ever been able to do? I think when you come in with both of those, the first shows that. biology works you're not just a clown um and then the second shows that there's a huge area of unmet need that you are attacking and um as we think a lot about like the engineering biology the computation the bio it stuff it's also important to us because we want to invest in companies where those technologies are are meaningful and differentiated Um, so you know i think that notion of platform as a foundry. And then the notion of like, how do we de-risk it with like a straightforward indication and a broader indication space is really uh, our kind of decision tree when we, when we see novel technologies or read interesting papers of how we would, you know, apply those to real uh, at least biotherapeutic uh, needs.
3: Makes sense. And thanks for helping to provide a framework about how you think about categorizing different platform technologies.
1: The scaffold and foundry analogy is uh, particularly interesting. And we've done some work on our end kind of talking about what's more of like an East Coast kind of multi-asset platform versus kind of a West Coast asset generation engine. I think the uh, foundry and scaffold analogy definitely fits that quite well. Thanks for putting clarity.
0: (laughs) It's cool. One of our companies actually took advantage of this idea spectacularly well, Eric Anderson's uh, company, Alloy Therapeutics, where, you know, Eric Anderson started Adamab. He's possibly one of the smartest people when it comes to business development and business models in pharma, like just absolute genius. And uh, he basically realized that there was all these scaffolds sitting around in big pharma, right? The velocity and mouse uh, that Regeneron had and uh, a variety of these other tools. And the scientists make them there's tons of money going to it. The velocity mouse took what is 30 million, David. Was that was that how much it took them to make? Uh, yes, a ton. Yeah. And there's like, and then all these things get made. And then of course they get to the drug. And the scientific team that built it is also equally sad that it gets sidelined. And so Eric goes out and he's like, let me just buy this from you, uh, from the farmer. Let me just take it. And I will maintain it. So if you ever need it again, you can come back to me. Um, And you pay me essentially a a small fee uh, to have access to this. And then I'm gonna be the sort of aggregator of all of these scaffolds across all these different biotechs and pharmas um, such that you can democratize the work done at one institution um, and allow others uh, to to use it. And, um, you know, he, he was the one who really figured out how do I make money off of all of these scaffolds sitting around. Uh, and so I really, really love what's done because it is sad how much great science gets done to get to the asset and then kind of left by the wayside. Um, so uh, it, was, it was a kind of a, a corollary aspect to kind of our thinking in there that, that there was a way to make money <laughs>
1: even on the scaffold side. Yeah, the, the aggregator uh, the recycler, I think, from pharma's shelf engine, I think would be very interesting <laughs> as you're talking about.
3: So another area where 8 BC spends time is in biomanufacturing. You have a robust portfolio with Brazilian, Solaris, Elegant, SwiftScale. Um, so David, can you talk about how there is a need for further development of infrastructure to support the boom of these next generation platforms?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jess. I think this is such an important question and dovetails nicely from some of what we were discussing before. You know, one thing I'd highlight about all of the companies that you just named is, you know, none of them, truly speaking, are trying to do something that's that's different from what people are doing now. They're just trying to take processes that exist and make them faster and cheaper and more reproducible. Um, And, you know, if you think about some of the areas that we've discussed on the therapeutic side, notably cell therapy, it would be hard, I'd say, to argue that part of what's held it back, uh, you know, it'd be hard to argue against that part of what's held it back, part of what's held it back is, you know, the cost that's associated with it, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in cost, the labor that's associated with it, and the timing that's associated with it, you know, it can be weeks, vein to vein time, uh you know and if you contrast that to you could imagine a process that's in order of magnitude cheaper in order of magnitude faster that's fully automated uh you know irrespective of any considerations about efficacy and you know applications to different indications there's no question that that radical increase in accessibility would have at least a great of an impact on patient care as does just you know the existence of the therapy at all and by way of analogy you, know, you can think about the automobile. Certainly the automobile, you know, was an was an important and transformative piece of technology. But when it really started impacting human life, uh, it was with the advent of the assembly line. And I think that's where we are today. I think we have all these pieces of, of really important technology and you know new therapeutic modalities that are ready to get advanced. Um, but what we need is more around biomanufacturing and technology infrastructure to get it to the point where it can really start to transform patient care. Uh, you know, and if we touch back again to the Illumina example, it's clear that there's just so much value to be generated there. And so for any listeners out there who are working on new pieces of technology and thinking, you know, can this be a company or does, do we need to have a therapeutics angle? I think, you know, the proof is in the pudding uh, for sure. New pieces of technology are going to be a critical component of everything that goes forward. Uh, you know, on the therapeutic side, I think we're really sorely wanting for new things that can you know improve these processes and standardize them and get them to a point where they can be deployed at scale.
3: And I really like again the assembly line analogy to use as a framework for how we think of these new platforms. So I'll pass it off to Chaz for our next portion of questions.
1: Just out of curiosity, any other kind of guiding ATVC framework analogies that you, you use?
2: One key one for sure, which we touched upon, but I'd really hammer home, is why now? Uh, you know, Our view is that the most exciting investments are always ones that are newly enabled by emerging technologies. And so internally, whenever we're thinking about an investment, it, it's always a question, what's changed in the last few years that's made this possible? And, you know, the example that we like to use internally uh, is, is, you know, Uber and Lyft ride sharing. Certainly, had that company been started, you know, had those companies been started five years earlier, it wouldn't have made sense, right? Because smartphones weren't deployed on mass yet. There was no way for that to reach scale. And yet, if you were to start it five years later, you'd be too late. Right. There would already be incumbents in that space who just garnered such a tremendous network effect that there's no way to compete. And so I would highlight that as an important framework for us as an invest as investors. There really needs to be an answer to the question of, of why now? What, what's the new technology? And you know, getting back to just this previous question, what's the new piece of technology that's enabling this such that you know this is something transformative that just became possible to do?
0: This is probably a, a little more specific uh, towards drug discovery um and this is actually taught you know articulated very clearly to us by uh, mark and Peyton at big hat which is this notion of like so much of computer aided drug discovery or bio-based tech-based drug discovery whatever um has a focus on um high throughput discovery uh let's do the same experiments but do it so much more that, uh, we will certainly in some statistical sense, find some interesting new hits because the tacit assumption is like, you know, we just need to do more experiments, do more of the same to finally get towards uh, n- new biology or new molecules or new compositions of matter. And what they said is they don't, they don't need that. Uh, they'd rather have a low latency experimentation uh, engine than a high throughput experimentation engine. And they're optimizing for latency, not throughput. Um, And the reason being is that this this sort of engineering mindset is always one of iteration. Uh, We're always, we do an experiment, we do a process and we always get a little bit better. And if you know that after every single experiment after every single, say, software iteration or whatever, if you think about software engineering, you're getting better. Um, Then the point is to iterate faster. Uh, This is kind of learned in the 90s, uh, comparing for the waterfall method to agile software development. And I think it's kind of what we're on the cusp of really understanding biology is that we don't need to do a lot more experiments, but rather we just need to do experiments faster so that the learning feedback cycle hits faster. And so a framework we've been thinking about a lot is how do we, where does technology allow for fast iteration and fast learning cycles, as opposed to just doing more of the same uh, biology? And you can kind of see that in the failure of high throughput screens for small molecules. And we've seen it, you know, even today and say like Devising like a a zillion different constructs for cars, uh, but not being able to test them out as opposed to really being a lot more thoughtful. About that wet lab interface that goes quickly and then the dry lab sort of in silico discovery being smarter using active learning probing novel areas of sequence space if you're going to devise an antibody like big hat does or you know novel small molecules or whatever. Um, And so. It's, it's stuck with me a lot and it's really shaped how I think about, you know, these tech-driven drug discovery approaches moving from high throughput to, to uh, low latency.
1: And, and with all these learnings and, and insights you guys have accumulated, uh, quite the portfolio of next-gen bio-unicorns now as well that have become not only North is in this space, but it really kind of led the massive wave in this motion and generated quite a few playbooks associated with these as well, that uh, many of these new startups hope to follow. Can you speak to some of the learnings of these new companies for our listeners? Maybe Orca, Syntego, Mammoth, Vile, yeah. Resilience, if you have any.
2: Yeah, I'm happy to, to start off with with Orca. So, you know, Orca I think is almost the quintessential example of what Francisco was talking before about. Tech target fit, and just the idea that a technology platform could be uniquely capable of executing on a need. So, you know, the story of of ORCA is is pretty fascinating. So, it comes out of Irv Weissman's lab at Stanford and builds off of some of the work that Irv had been doing, you know, for decades that he had spun into systemics, which was acquired and then shut down around particular cell types that can be used in bone marrow transplantation for superior outcomes. And, you know, it had gotten to the point in recent years where. There were some pretty good ideas of how you could engineer a graft with different types of cells within it and different proportions of those cells to really give you know superior survival versus standard of care approaches. Um, but the problem is it was basically impossible to manufacture at scale. And so there was a trial that was being done at Stanford that had you know, very, very good early clinical results um, and basically just went nowhere because there was just no way that they could roll that out. Uh, you know, more so than they had done. And so ORCA came along and, you know, they have, uh, you know, I don't don't know if we have time to go into it, but a really fantastic and incredible piece of technology under the hood for sorting cells, um, really high speeds, really great purity. um, And, you know, I, I think it's just an example where once they applied that to this problem, they took something that was impossible to do and made it possible. Um, You know, you have this box where now, instead of having to use, you know, incumbent cell sorting technologies, like fax, where you can get the purity, but not the speed, and it isn't sterile. um, Or max, where, you know, you can get the speed, but you're only on one marker. They really brought together the best of both worlds. And in doing so, we're able to in-license that trial and, you know, have now been running it extremely successfully, had just fantastic outcomes so far with the patients they've dosed. And it's something that literally just would have sat on the shelf instead of impacting patient lives had they not brought their tech to bear And it. And you know, there's all sorts of amazing anecdotes of people who were, you know, nearing the end and didn't really have any therapeutic options left, and Orca was the difference for them. And you know, they were able to get a treatment because of that technology. And you know, now are in remission and living active lifestyles. Um, and so I think you know, getting back to the lesson learned, tech. Target fit is is really the key for Orca. They really have something where without that piece of technology, there's trials and you know types of types of new therapeutics
1: that just would not be deployable otherwise. Francisco, any other anecdotes from those companies? Not sure.
0: Let's see. Like so, um, amongst those ones, I would say there's a there's a notion of um the phrase "the future is here; it's just not evenly distributed," and. Uh, I think a common theme amongst, you know, Synthego, Lyell, Resilience, Mammoth, is basically um, how, how, do you, how do you evenly distribute the future? Um, you know, David's talked about a lot about, you know, bio being, you know, important to grow this and, you know, even using the notion of orca, being able to uniquely do this thing that, that we knew worked and just couldn't scale when I think about like a lot of these companies, what they've really done is, uh, expand access to science. So, you know, Synthigo coming out and basically, uh, figuring out how to, you know, uh, create a, a synthetic guide RNA, you know, long guide RNA, single guides, um, to really bring the best quality guides, uh, for CRISPR, um, and then using that technology to help people engineer cells. Um, and so that groups didn't need to have highly trained scientists at the bench trying to do cell editing is, is massive. Um, and it kind of enables not just pharma who can pay for it to do things faster, but enables biotechs who don't need to hire that capability anymore. Um, Mammoth similarly, you know, discovering completely novel nucleases uh, for CRISPR uh, such that you don't need to be uh, a bioinformatics expert diving through like the genomes of bacteria trying to figure out like what's going to work and characterize it. They do that for you. Um, Lyell, you know, taking all of these amazing novel biological discoveries, novel targets and cell types, and creating sort of the next gen uh, CAR T company, um, you know, where. Lyle is like, you know, eight different companies rolled into one and they have really just figured out with this unified platform, they can bring to bear all these novel therapies and resilience is kind of like a, a pure manifestation of this, which is there's no reason a gene therapy company, a cell therapy company, a vaccine company should have to spend 50 to hundred million dollars on CapEx trying to build out internal manufacturing when it exists all over the world. And so I, I, I think a lot about how novel biology drives, you know, cures, but so much value is driven by actually being able to enable that for more people than just enabling it for, for one person or a small cohort of, of uh, subjects in a clinical trial. Um, so, you know, I can go into smaller anecdotes with each of them with each of them, but, but I think uh, that's broadly, the major learning we've seen is that these companies operate at scale because they're taking you know small things that don't scale and figuring out how they do scale. The
2: other lesson I'd add just uh, on on Lyle uh, is you know the, the idea of, of setting yourself up for success in terms of buckets of risk right So if you think about the different buckets of risk when you take on an investment, right so there's the market risk of, you know, if you succeed at this, will somebody buy it? Um, you know, certainly for Carchees, I don't think there's any real doubt of that. Then there's the execution risk of, is this team capable of solving whatever problem needs to be solved? And then there's the scientific and, you know, technical risk of, uh, you know, is this actually even gonna work? And of course for Cartes there are some open questions there. Um, and, you know, I think to Francisco's point about having multiple pieces of the platform unified under one roof, well, Lyle has done phenomenally well is bringing so much resource and so much talent <clears throat> that you've eliminated the execution risk of, you know, in a normal circumstance, there'd always be a question of, are these people capable of solving this grandchild and of getting Carchees to work on solid tumors? You know, it's hard to imagine, I'd say, a team more capable than Lyles. And so bringing all those people together and, and giving them the adequate resources is key. And then what you've done is you've reduced that down to scientific risk where to Francisco's point, having so many different pieces of the puzzle together, you've diversified the way you're thinking about it such that you can have a lot of confidence that the, at the end of the day, they're going to be able to develop a, a therapy that's highly efficacious. Um, and so I think you know in, just in terms of understanding how to structure these types of you know almost grand challenge companies, I think Lyle has done an excellent job in exemplifying that.
1: Thanks for those anecdotes, folks. And, and now seeing AFVC's work, it's it's just jaw droppingly impressive. You should be so proud of the amazing companies you've worked with and the portfolio you've built here, and truly a, a set of companies leading the way in, in this new wave of things. But I, I still feel like we're very early in the bioIT wave. I mean, um, <laughs> look at the progress you've made in, the, in just treatments with the human body over the last 50 years we still barely know how the brain works at this point. This is not just a, a thesis that we're going to have for the next five and 10 years. This is something that we're truly on the ground floor something that could be a very well century, if not more, uh, that's uh, exciting opportunities to invest along the way. Can you give us a little bit of a crystal ball here and what does 2050 kind of look like with the APC portfolio and seeing the, some of these companies' missions come to fruition? What does 2050 look like?
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to kick it off. Um, you know, if, if we touch back on the different areas that we discussed, you know, obviously we've spent a decent amount of time talking about cell therapy. Um, you know, and if we tie that back, uh, I'm, I'm very hopeful uh, going back to the idea of having true immune orchestration against a tumor. You know, I think it would be perhaps overly optimistic to say that all cancer is going to be cured. I don't know that I'd, you know, go that far. I think there's still a lot of basic biology that needs to be uncovered before we can really say something like that. Um, But I'm very hopeful that standard of care in all cancers will look like, you know, the best case scenarios for people with blood cancer stay and how CAR-T, you know, delivers efficacy for them, which is to say, I think five-year survival rates of, you know, 90% or, or higher for basically every cancer type, I, 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 you know, I hope, and I, I believe that that will be the reality then.
0: Twenty fifty for Francisco. Uh, it's, I think uh, something I think about a lot is blurring the lines between um, pharmaceuticals and healthcare services and delivery. Um, there's kind of a common notion right now around cell therapies, the phrase, you know, the process is the product, um, at some point composition of matter is the wrong way to think about IP in the biopharmaceutical space. we have more of these like living therapies, um, and manufacturing them ends up becoming, uh, the actual IP, uh, towards bringing that to bear. If you take it even a step further, Um, I think into your point Chaz about like neuroscience, for example um, the sort of artificial separation of the brain and the mind, like that there are apps today, like um, um, digital therapeutics that are CBT for addiction treatment. Um, There's consumer based apps like calm for like, you know, relaxation, but obviously, you know, is a way to help with things like anxiety and depression. Um, and we also have drugs for those things. And it's it's weird that we separate them. Um, it makes sense in a past life. Like if you get an infectious disease, you take an antibiotic, you don't talk to the you know pathogen. But uh, as these diseases get more complex and the treatments get more complex, um, we have to start thinking more about how do you deliver these uh, more broadly? Um, but also, how, how do you mix this and what's a form of reimbursement? How do you pay for this? Um, both because they're very expensive, but also because how does, like, right now, does a PBM still, you know, brokers a cell therapy, but it seems really odd. <laughs> um, does, does a PBM broker a, a um, bone marrow transplant? I, I don't think so, or, or an organ transplant um and so when we start to blur all these lines uh the structures we've set up don't make any more sense and it would be a shame to try to retrofit you know existing incumbents into kind of a new structure of healthcare delivery as opposed to figuring out novel ways to both deliver care pay for it and like follow up on it um in these kind of multimodal ways so i know it's like a a series of random sort of thoughts there, but um, I, I don't, I don't know how uh, the therapies that David, you know, has rightly brought up as these complex ones fit into the standard molds of of business as usual.
1: I I, I think maybe the thing that we it's this kind of I, I guess it's of interest to me. Maybe we haven't touched on is starting kind of these next gen bio companies in the wild um, versus kind of in academia, how to go from the bench to the clinic, maybe in a more atypical manner. We see a lot of our deal flow at this point come from universities. We haven't talked about the path of these companies like Eligen, which is a brain child of, of Matt Hill's. Like how does that come out of the wild here? Uh, I think where does this next gen type of company come from and maybe that's something that we haven't spoke with as much.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I personally would love to see that more. And I think it's how we started actually a lot of ABC was like, you know, like what what are these founder driven companies, you know, deciding things out of the ether outside of academia. Um, but it just became the case that like academia can take risks that startups can't, <laughs> like yeah. target target discovery one that we you know always argue about. Oh, like, I know, wonderful, right? right? <laughs> but it's just impossible. <laughs> we just can't think of a historical precedent for a target discovery company that's worked.
1: Um, <laughs> and so it's the, it's the chicken and the egg. And in yeah. some instances, it's like how many generations of eggs are we before the chicken?
0: Yeah. I think a big reason that like manufacturing is so exciting, and the overused example we have is is AWS. Is that, um, you know, in the '90s, right? You had to buy servers to start a tech company or web company, right? And with the notion of cloud computing, then it just took you know a couple million dollars and a Ruby on Rails hacker with a small team uh, to build out these products, and got to focus on product market fit iteration as opposed to like building out all of this infrastructure um and i agree with your vision i don't know if i agree with the time frame uh and i think the reason we're so focused on manufacturing and infrastructure is if you are able to unbundle uh the stack of biotech discovery um you enable uh a cheaper faster biotech that can be a lot of people with smart ideas. Uh, and there's a notion of that with the virtual biotech, right? But uh, uh, in the wild biotechs, let's, let's uh, wild tech, <laughs> um, I don't, I just think I've, it's been very hard uh, to see really great ones. I've seen, we've invested in a couple, but just jaw-dropping innovation in that tech target fits really hard without academic research. Yeah.
2: Well, the interesting uh, part of the dynamic is, you know, I think until relatively recently, it, it would be basically unheard of for a top academic to move into industry. Right. And so you know, in, in the in the Ph.D. program that Francisco and I did on the wall of you know our main conference room, we have photos from throughout the years and you can almost trace through, you know, like five year period by five year period, the proportion of people who went into academia versus industry. And you can see that shift toward the latter. Uh, and, you know, it's not limited to people who are newly graduating, right? I mean, of course, there's all sorts of examples of prominent academics. Uh, you know, people like Daphne Kohler running a startup, Aviv Rakev moving to pharma, Jeff Hinton you know, moving in, in, into, into big tech largely. And I think, frankly, it's, it's, it's a fascinating transition where industry now has has almost caught up I'd say not in terms of the risk-taking part that Francisco was talking about, but in terms of how innovative uh, the methods that are being applied are, right? Uh, and I think you know part of this is democratization of, of capability, as Francisco keeps hinting at. Um, you know, there's just so much more that you can do now in industry than was possible before. Uh, where you know, I, I agree about the comments about you know wild tech, as it were. Um, but I do think there continues to be really compelling opportunities, not just from, you know, younger people, uh, emerging out of academia, but even, you know, very senior and seasoned and accomplished people moving out of academia to really propel things forward in an industry setting where, you know, it wouldn't have been possible for them to do that before, or I guess a, a, a better framing is they wouldn't have wanted to because they wouldn't have felt like they were truly pushing the envelope in the same way that they could staying in academia. And I think, I think that's become less and less true. I think At this point, you know, there's just as much exciting transformational technology development happening in in industry and in startups. Um, And, you know, it's easy to have mixed feelings about, you know, people leaving academia to move into industry. But, you know, I mean, the good thing, of course, is when it leads to more and and better and and quicker and more effective impact on patient care, uh, you know, I tend to see that element at least as a good thing.
1: One last question, if you guys have time just out of intellectual curiosity. Um, how big do you think these companies can actually get? I think is a question I've been asking myself recently, just the old school biopharma acquisition of, of past is like, Oh, a billion dollar exits gigantic. And now it's a $10 billion exit with garden and with, with grail almost. And some of these companies have recursion. It's like that foundry model. God, could they have a thousand assets in their pipeline? Maybe more who knows? how big can they get? Do you think the next hundred billion dollar biotech company comes from one of these foundry models or manufacturing? Um, Do you think there's a hundred billion dollar biotech company wouldn't be happening with this new approach to bio IT? I,
0: you know, my, my, my hot take is that Orca could be a hundred billion dollar biotech. Um, It has to be a foundry model, but I think it has to go even further. It has to be a a healthcare services on top of that. Um, Think about like a traditional biotech is basically like securitized, you know, IP (laughs) of composition of matter, right? Like pharma buying (laughs) uh, their pipeline. And so there's an upper bound to how much pharma can pay, right? Full stop. So, so there, there we're bounded, and it turns out pharma can pay a lot, so you can make a lot of money. Um, but until you commercialize your drug, you're not going to be able to do that. And then you can build a really large company upon that. A few have gone the distance, but I wouldn't say massively. But once we, I think punching through toward that massive sort of like uh, snowflake Uber sort of tech company halo type scale, um, I think you're probably going to need to take on risk uh, in the outcomes of your patients. Um, And at some point, all great companies uh, have scale at the consumer level, right? And so I think um, that massiveness is gonna require basically directly having a relationship with a patient, which means it's a services company just as much as it is a biotherapy company. And I think the interesting part about these cell therapies like Orca is that it it can do that, right? If it can manufacture a bone marrow transplant for everybody in need of one, um, and and they uniquely can do that. Uh, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to get there, and I think Ivan's the kind of person who plans to.
2: And I think the other key, you know, to that is these are therapies that are actually curative, right? I mean, if you look at the history of cancer therapy, basically you're just trying to buy time, right, as much as you can. And I think increasingly, you know, it's viewed that that's untrue for cell therapy that they can really be. A, a truly curative therapy. And, you know, we have a, a piece up on the website that we wrote up when the ORCA investment was announced that I'd encourage listeners to read. And one of the things that we mentioned in there is the possibility of ORCA being part of a cure for HIV. And I think we really believe that. Um, and, you know, if, if you underwrite to that, I mean, the, the impact that that would have, you know, on, on patient care, it's inestimable, right? I mean, that's generational. Um, and I think you, know, you could highlight Lyle as another example, where if you see Lyle as a successor to Kite and Juno, which each sold for $10 billion just for blood cancers, which are only 10% of cancers, right? I mean, naturally Lyle can be worth $100 billion. Um, and I, I, think it's, I think it makes perfect sense, right? I mean, if you're gonna cure people who have uh, you know, solid tumor cancers, if you're gonna cure people who have HIV, um, you know, how is that not just unbelievable in, in the impact that it's
1: having on yeah, them. And a, a total aside, but um, Xylus is an interesting portfolio company of ours that we shared that I think takes a little bit of a different approach to that foundry idea of a platform, uh, starting with diagnostics, kind of building up their biobank through the patient care side of things and doing high throughput screening with pharma um, for preclinical development gives them unique advantages than becoming a therapeutic company. And that idea of kind of a, a three-sided platform, you don't typically see very often. I think companies like that, that have transformational technology and like Silas for Organoids, for example, uh, looking at stuff like that, I think that's how you also get these massive scale companies is that's a multi-dimensional platform, not just uh, therapeutic focus, but more of a um, different standards of care impacting.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think Xylas is very similar to Orca in that way, where there's novel technology under the hood that's enabling new applications. And I think it's similar to Elgin in that way too, right? I mean, um, you know, they're all unified by their use of microfluidics to, you know, again, uh, create the newly possible.
1: Well, folks, this has been such a highlight hosting you. Thanks again for your time. And so appreciate getting to learn behind the scenes, all the amazing stuff you're up to.
0: Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your
3: favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.